3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. So good to be back with you today. Uh, So, yeah, it's our first show of the new year. Um, We've got some highlights from the last year to play for you today, um, but it's our first live one. Uh, So what do we have for the plan today? Well, we've got a jam-packed show, I think. We're going to be hearing from um, Claudia. So um, our lovely friend Claudia can't be in the studio today, but we will be hearing her speak to Danielle Claude later on. Um, that's going to be coming up relatively soon, and that's going to be about bushfire psychology and actually living with fire. Um, and Danielle's from the, the sorry, Danielle's from Flinders University, and yeah, she'll be chatting to Claudia a bit about that. Fantastic, and we'll also get to hear Cla- uh, Claudia's lovely voice later in the show. Uh, we're going to replay her interview with Dr. John Serry, which was. Uh, a fantastic interview we did in the studio in December. And then we're also going to replay an interview with Raylene Haradine, uh, which was about the lost but not forgotten report into the uh, uh, suicides of children known to child protection. And for me, I've got a quick interview I did last year with Helen Dickinson on some upcoming changes to the NDIS. So it should be a good first show. Awesome. Some little reflections from last year, just peppered in. And, yeah, 2020, back in the studio. What did you get up to on your break? Well, I went on a um, a bit of a road trip with some friends across New South Wales, which was interesting um, because of the, the fires, I obviously. Imagine. And, yeah, it was, very, it was interesting coming from Melbourne, where I don't think we have had much... Well, before that time, we hadn't had much exposure to it. I feel like it was something that you knew was happening, but it wasn't particularly... It was happening in New South Wales, yeah. so we weren't really yeah. paying attention. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's hard to grasp as well. Yeah, um, and and, and I feel like I had been paying enough attention to it anyway to, to know details, but it's not until um, we were really driving through some of the areas and the amount of devastation that you see and the, the actual the thick black smoke that we were driving through, or the thick, like, orange smoke that Those we, we were into driving through. Those are some of the most terrifying through. pictures I've seen of, like, the sky's bright orange. Yeah. Bright. And it was, yeah, it was really terrifying. Um, Did I you think, guys smell the wood smoke when you woke up this morning? Yeah, it's really smoky yeah. out there this morning in, in Melbourne. It was coming into my apartment, like, in my bedroom, I woke up to the smell. And it's kind of weird because you associate it with maybe being in front of a warm fire in your in your grandma's house. Yeah. And this, it's actually burning the whole country. Yeah, you yeah. do a double check to make sure nothing was up at home. I know. Life, so it's just the air pollution. it really did smell like burning, didn't it? Yeah. It, really, really scary. Yeah. yeah, when you have a campfire at night and mm-hmm. wake up the next morning. Um, and everything smells a bit like that, yeah. So out there, listeners, it is it, the air quality probably isn't great today. I can't find... 
um, any details on the air quality this morning, but just from being out there, it's pretty it's pretty heavy. Yeah. I mean, we've we've usually got some cyclists in the studio, and they've said that they haven't cycled in today, and they've driven because of that the quality there. So yeah, just something to be aware of when you're going out today. And I think they're also saying, uh, look out for your pets as well with the air quality. So if you can keep them inside, because mm. um, it's bad for everyone. Mm. I think over um, the last couple of days, we've seen some amazing generosity, though, for the fire campaigns that have happened. Yeah. Um, Ella and I were speaking earlier that Celeste Barber, if you're familiar with her, she's an Australian comedian, and she started a campaign over Facebook, which began for 500,000 for the New South Wales fire service. Um, the target was $500,000, and within a couple of days, it's already up to $30 million. I wow. mean, that's incredible. Um, Facebook, as we were saying as well, we're not... I want to read more about, actually, if they're going to be taking a cut. I briefly read some of the terms and conditions about the charities and how they work with them, and they've said that they don't. They've said that they absorb the costs for transactions. Okay. But um, I think a bit more digging needs to be done there. And I would say that it's it's a, a massively amazing tool for getting a, a message out there, like like Celeste Barber has done. Yeah, yeah. I I'm mean, sorry, the I whole world has, not the whole world, but people from around the world have donated to this cause. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would just, I'm, I'm just going to dig a little bit further before I either give my money over via Facebook or go directly to the charity. So, and uh, the food bank, I think, is uh, accepting food stuff. So if you have it, non-perishable items, uh, giving giving those is a really good thing for people who are displaced and you know they need something to eat, really. Mhm. And also, just quickly, I saw that yesterday. Um, Scott Morrison has argued that the government has always drawn the link between climate change and the bushfires. Um, <laughs> despite him only then 24 hours before that telling BBC Radio, uh, so the UK, down in the UK, that scientists claim there is no link between the fires. <laughs> so ScoMo can't wait for him to get his story straight. Yeah. Um, it's going to be, a, yeah, a revelation when he does. <laughs> but just, yeah, keeping an eye on what that, what that man is doing. Yeah, I think they like using the loophole of indirect link and direct link, mm. um, but either way, it's a link. So. Mm, mm. Yeah, and there's all the videos going around. I mean, it's completely viral, isn't it? The Facebook videos and the, yeah, the social media. Not of, getting his hand shaved. Of him not getting his hand shaved. <laughs> yeah. Turning up in his chinos and shirt with uh, a cap on, just yeah. grabbing people's hands. Um, and all the money that would have gone into his PR, and he still couldn't get it right. Yeah. Um. One, a few few stats that I found interesting about it is, so the Black Friday bushfires of 1939, that they happened uh, 13th of January. The Ash Wednesday bushfires of 18, uh, 1983, that was the 16th of February. And the Black Saturday bushfires um, went in 2009, they happened on the 7th of February. So it's really... Uh, early in the season to be seeing this kind of devastation in the country yeah and i can i can there's a sense of foreboding you know what about what what are we going to do in january or february when the weather's really dry when it's you know it's had a full mm. summer to mm. yeah to mm. and at this stage they're saying there's no end in sight still yeah mm. 
And obviously this is terrifying for people in Australia and for people in those communities. Um, as I was driving around New South Wales, it was interesting tapping into some of their local radio stations and their community radio stations. And um, people obviously phoning in and speaking to the hosts about their stories were directly affected and in evacuation camps at that time and also um, having yeah lost their, their homes. There were people... There was a, a guy that they were speaking to and he had been calling the station every day just checking in because he's saying this is this is the latest in my home. He, he was fighting the fires around his home um, for for a week or so. And they and they knew him by name and they were checking him every day because him and his son were out there fight, fighting the fires. Um, it was it was also quite interesting to hear that at one point on Saturday, I can't remember exactly where we were, but we were driving from Wollongong back to Melbourne, and it was just as just before we crossed over to Victoria, and we had the radio on, and the host um, was saying that you're now in an emergency area, please um, enable your bush survival strategy immediately, you can't leave, it's too late now to evacuate and you have to go into your survival mode immediately. Oh no, what do you do? How terrifying. Well, we were on the motorway, so we were we you were fine. But really, that, that's, that was a call out to anybody in a remote area, yeah. I guess, in a house, still, still, I don't know, waiting for it to blow over. And they're just saying, okay, it's too late now, you've got to just put your survival strategy in play. Wow, and you yeah. say, what can you do at that stage? I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of it is just make make some make it as wet as possible. I mean, yeah. that's as far as I've got yeah. from the pictures. I don't know what the strategy actually is. Maybe we can look into that for another day. But I mean, we're in Victoria. We're getting yeah massively massive problems now and there are websites that you can look into and you can call Vic emergency hotline on one eight zero zero two two six two two six if you want any more information and we can give we'll give out a few more different uh, information sites across the show as well that's just one that you can go and call and see exactly yeah what sort of information you need to know if you're in an area that could be at risk definitely and it's going to be so interesting to hear Claudia's interview with Danielle, because I understand that's really about people's attitudes to fire, whether you choose to stay and fight, whether you choose to leave, or yeah, yeah, the history and of fire. Yeah, exactly that. And we can dive into that now. Um, so this is Claudia's interview that she did before Christmas. Um, so just bearing that in mind when you're listening to it. Um, it's an interview with Dr. Daniel Claude, Senior Research Fellow at Flinders University, Adelaide, about the psychology of living with fire. So Danielle has a combination of talents. She's an award-winning author of non-fiction and fiction books, an Oxford-qualified zoologist, a senior research fellow in creative writing, and a former community safety employee of the Victorian Country Fire Authority. So Claudia spoke to Danielle um, yeah, back in December, and she wanted to know about the human side of living with fire and where it came from. My interest was in the way the Australian bush is adapted to fire um, and the way it, it seems to often certain ecosystems actually promote fire or, or you know, have adaptations to take advantage of fires. Um, but 
I guess as I was writing my book, I became more and more interested in how people respond to fire and how well adapted we are as as organisms to fire. And, and humans have a really long and complicated relationship with fire. We, we, we are quite fire adapted in one sense, but also quite fire vulnerable in others. And so pertinent at present as Australia witnesses the gravest mm. bushfire disaster since the Black Saturday fires. You lived through those fires, and, and the book you speak about is the book you wrote, A Future in Flames, which was written soon after those uh, 2009 fires. Mm, mm. And you highlighted some of the lessons of fire tragedies in Australia. So fast forward 10 years, what was your reaction when the fires broke out in New South Wales and it came to your attention that lives were being lost? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that... The when I first started writing about fires, I, I thought that I would structure my book around the lessons we've learned um, about how to, how to live with and fight bushfires. And we have learned a lot of lessons. There's no doubt that we have gotten a lot better at fighting fires. Um, but I'm not sure we've learned a lot about how to live safely with them. Um, and, and what struck me in reviewing the history of fires in um, you know, Settlement Australia is that we, we haven't really improved our, our... We make the same mistakes over and over again. So you look at the, the media aftermath after any major fire um, and you'll find exactly the same headlines and exactly the same stories and exactly the same responses from government. Um, and we often don't seem to implement the changes. You know, we, we know what we should be doing straight after a fire, but we lose the impetus to actually implement sy systemic change. Um, and widespread change in how we behave. So we sort of condemning ourselves and make the same mistakes. In your recent essay published in The Conversation titled Living with Fire and Facing Our Fear, you spoke about the hopeful denial that bad things only happen to other people and won't happen to us. What oh, is hopeful oh. denial? <laughs> well, I guess the, the thing with fires is that they're just not very frequent. So even though they, obviously they, they pop up with regularity, the, the, the likelihood of any one person experiencing a fire or having their property burnt out is relatively small. So, um, you know, you might have somebody who's, never, who's always lived in a fire-prone area and yet never experienced a fire, or it might only happen every couple of generations. Some people are unfortunate and have experienced multiple fires through their, their properties. Um, but for most of us, you know, there's, there's a possibility that you might never have it. So you can afford to be hopeful that it won't happen because it is a rare event. Um, so, so, and I think that humans are naturally optimistic about things. We like to think we're going to win the lottery even though we know the odds are massively stacked against us. We know that even if you tell people that they are more likely to die than win the lottery, um, they will still buy a lottery ticket. So <laughs> we're really very, very strangely um, focused on optimism and good things happening, not bad. So we're not great at preparing for those bad things. And that can be quite a dangerous mindset. Mm, mm. It, it is problematic. You, um, the, you, you, you have to look at, I guess, you know, well, you have to get people to accept that there is a risk. Then you have to get people to accept that they can do something about it. So when people feel that they can't do something about it, they're much more likely just to go into denial or just say, well, it's too hard, it's too difficult, I'm just not going to think about it. 
And I think that is a lot of people's reactions to fire. It's, it, you know, if a fire comes, there's nothing I can do. And we know there's lots you can do to make yourself safer. Um, you can significantly improve your chances of survival and of saving your property as well. But it is risky, um, but, but not doing anything is also risky. Now, you yourself live in a bushfire zone in Adelaide Hills. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have personal lived experience of um, being in uh, that environment. Mm. Yes. And you've actually described from your personal experience a type of mental resistance that you've experienced when it comes mm. to preparing for the bushfire season. Mm. And to quote from your essay, you've described it as a vague, irrational resentment. <laughs> what is the irrational part of the feeling? I know that every season we need to go and check the fire pumps and run through them and, and my husband's very good at making us all go and do that. And, and they, you have to anyway to make sure that they're all that it's all working fine and it starts easily and there's no problems with it. But um, it, it's just, it's annoying to have to do it. You know, I don't, I don't really want to have to think about fire risk. You, when you live in a, in a fire zone, there's a low level of anxiety all through summer. Um, where you're worrying about what the weather is doing, what you know, what's coming, um, and that co- that it does cause a bit of a strain. You know, it's tiring, and um, people who do prepare for fires and, and you know make sure that they're they're ready for them often talk about that weariness with with having to think about fires all the time. And I think you're really noticing it now, especially in New South Wales, where people are in towns that are under threat for a long time and they're never sure when the fire's coming and they get extremely tired. Um, the same thing appeared in the campaign fires in Victoria. So, that, so it, it's a tiring thing to do you're, because your body is a little bit fired up all the time. You're always on edge um, knowing that you might have to leap into action um, very quickly. And, you know, there is a lot of preparation work, especially if you've got a bit of property and you have to, you know, slash all the grass and make sure it's all cut and, you know, tidy up the property and do all of that sort of stuff. It, it can be quite a lot of work. It sounds like a lot of work, but important work. So if someone is in a position like yourself, they're living in a, an area with um, a lot of dry vegetation, how do they reverse the psychology? How do you shift yourself out of this feeling like it's all too hard and sort of get that urge to action uh, those safety measures? Well, I think that's where the um, there's different programs in different states, but you know there's either fire guard or fire safe groups where groups of neighbours get together and they will often they will often do a preliminary training program with their local fire authority to give them all the basic information they need on how to prepare their property and themselves. But then every year they will have regular meetings and they'll often do that in the lead up to the fire season. They'll get together as a neighbourhood. Often, you know, they can often, it serves as a pre-Christmas drinks or, you know, a barbecue or something. So it's quite social. But they'll also talk about their fire preparation plans and you know, discuss with each other what different things they're doing, and, and that sort of gives you the social momentum. I think I think making it feel like it's a normal everyday activity actually helps release a lot of that tension. It makes it it normalises the behaviour, and then it's just something we all do, just like driving safely or obeying road rules. We don't find that a, a stress to do because it's normal and everyday, and we wouldn't think of doing anything else. And there is also a um, sort of collective momentum that comes of individuals coming together in a group and, mm. and feeling like they're not the only one 
facing mm. a problem. Um, there must be some positive feelings that then come out when people have taken appropriate steps to safeguard their home and family. Absolutely. There is evidence that suggests that people who, who have prepared, even when the outcomes are bad, even, even when they lose property or, or even you know, animals or, or family members, they still recover better psychologically if they have been prepared because a lot of the trauma um, from those situations comes from a loss of control. So you feel like you've, you've lost all control and there was nothing you could have done. Whereas when people have prepared, they're more likely to think, well, you know, if I'd done this or I should have done this or perhaps, you know, if I put this in place, we would have been okay. So they don't lose their sense of control over what happened and it's, it seems to have a a less traumatic effect or, or they have a faster recovery and also they have that community to, to fall back on so those pre-existing social bonds really help people pull through. And that was Dr Danielle Claude, Senior Research Fellow, Creative Writing at Flinders University in Adelaide, talking to Claudia at 3CR about the psychology of living with fire. Just a reminder, um, in an emergency or if you see smoke or flames, do call 000 immediately. Um, and for further information on how to keep safe during the coming months, you can visit the CFA website at cfa.vic.gov.au. Um, and follow the CFA on social media. You can also download the Vic Emergency app on your smartphone or go to the Vic Emergency website and listen to official emergency broadcasters in your local area, such as the ABC. And again, call the Vic Emergency hotline on 1800 226 226. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Claudia, for that. I'm so glad that we got to hear her and with Danielle. It's a really interesting interview, really interesting piece. And we're now going to go to some music with... Fulton Street. Fulton Street. With the Problems, Problems and Pain. Problems and Pain,
that was Problems and Pain by Fulton Street. And now we've got a quick interview I did last year with Helen Dickinson on some upcoming changes to the NDIS. Um, so I just started off with asking her what those changes looked like and what they'll actually mean for people on the system. So there's, there's a whole series of different changes. So there's six different areas um, that have been identified that need reform. Um, and a lot of them are around things like quicker access and best decision-making around the scheme and making sure that there's consistent decisions um, that are equitable for everybody um, and that improve the long-term um, outcomes for participants. Um, so within that, um, with each, each of those six different aims, there are a suite of different um, changes within there, and they'll take effect at different points. Um, but the majority of them should be in place by about the middle of next year. And they're designed to fix some existing issues with the scheme, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So there are currently a number of issues around um, the flexibility of the scheme. So um, when you have a plan, you have um, funds that are allocated to different categories. Um, and sometimes it's not very easy. Um, if you find that your needs change slightly or you can't get access to particular things, it's not very easy to switch your funds across those different categories. So there are some, so there's some changes that are going to make the scheme more flexible um, in that way. In terms of the planning process, also um, as of, I think, April next year, people are going to start to see a, a draft of their plan before they receive it. So at the moment what happens is you go into a planning meeting um, and then a bit after that you receive the, the finalised plan. But if that isn't right or if, you've, if something's been missed or misunderstood in that process, um, then that means that you have to then go through a plan review. Um, so people are going to start to be able to see drafts of theirs um, before they're, they're finalised. Um, there are also going to be um, changes to make plans for some people longer. So at the moment, most people have a new plan every year, which is reviewed every 12 months. Some people have a two-year plan, but it's, it's a relatively small percentage. Um, but um, soon people are going to be able to request a plan of three years. So if you have um, a fairly stable um, impairment and, and your life circumstances are, are fairly stable, um, it may be that you can have that longer plan without having to be reviewed every um, every 12 months. Um, and there's also some other changes around um, who pays for um, assessments. So at the moment, when you go through a planning process, sometimes you might have to pay um, for some assessments by different professionals um, to go into your plan. Um, but now what's going to happen is they're all going to be paid by the NDIA. So there's a whole series of different plans that um, are picking up issues that have been highlighted by people with disability and community organisations for some time now. Are there any issues that still remain or anything you need, think the government needs to focus on? Uh, well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a massive scheme. It's, you know, there's a whole amount of new money going into a scheme and it's creating new disability markets and new ways of working you know, around the country. And so there are always going to be issues that will happen around that and there'll be a lot to learn from that. I think um, one of the challenges that I see is the NDIA, the agency that um, is charged with administering the scheme, um, they have a cap that has been put on their staffing. So they were in, originally envisaged to be a particular size, um, but there was a decision taken back in 2014 to cap the number of people who worked for that organisation. And I think some of the challenges that we see arise out of the fact that there isn't enough capacity 
in that agency to do some of the work that it needs to do. So um, I think all of the sorts of changes we talked about are very welcome um, by people, but to some degree the, the devil is in, in the detail in the terms of how these things will be delivered. So um, even though if we have longer plans, that means there are fewer um, plans that need to be done. So if people are doing them every three years as well and every 12 months, that's, you know, uh, fewer plans to be done. But still there are a lot of people um, who, who need to um, who need to have plans. And there isn't a lot of spare capacity um, in the NDIA. Another challenge that um, I'm really interested in is, I mean, all of these changes are around how we ensure that people get good plans um, and can make good decisions around the services. Um, but having a plan doesn't necessarily mean that you can access some of those services. So we're seeing what the NBIA refers to as thin markets um, emerge around the country. And they're where people um, have uh, provision made within their plans for certain services, but they can't get access to them either because they don't exist in those areas or there are really big waiting lists for them. So even for quite, um, you know, uh, quite common services like occupational therapy, there are some really big waiting lists around the country for those services. So there's a real need to kind of think about um, how we do some of that market stewardship role so we can make sure that people have the services that they need uh, uh, made available. And, and the final kind of challenge within that is there has been some disquiet within the provider um, community. Um, and so if you look at things like um, National Disability Services, which is the peak body for community organizations who deliver disability services, um, they do an, uh, a survey every year of providers. And providers within that have been telling us for a couple of years that um, the amount that is a fixed tariffs for some services isn't sufficient um, for them to be able to deliver that service. So they're finding themselves in financial deficit. Now, there were some changes made to some aspects of, of pricing this year, picking up on those issues. Um, and, and, and I wonder whether some of that issue isn't about necessarily the, the level of the pricing, but the fact that providers are having to behave very differently in this new market than they did in the previous service. They need a lot more business skills to be able to um, individually contract for these services. So there's a bit of an issue around capacity for providers and the need for some support around the area. So as I said, there, there are a, a number of issues still within the system, but um, I think we've got to be really careful to say that doesn't mean that the NDIS isn't working. It is working for some people and, you know, the, we really needed an improvement to disability services in this country. Um, and we just need to make sure that politicians and the NDIA uh, and providers can continue to listen to people with disability uh, and to respond to those changes. Yeah, as you said, it's a, such a massive project. Do you think the issues are an overall part of the teething process or is um, there more an issue with the approach of the government? Is there enough consultation with people with a lived experience and service I, providers? I think, yeah, there's always an ongoing challenge um, in that people with disability are not listened to in a number of different ways. And, you know, we've got to remember the history of we, we have often not listened to people with disability. They've, you know, been forced into particular services and been asked to feel grateful for those. And we still have really significant um, uh, inequitable outcomes for people with disability. Many people are isolated um, from the mainstream community. And so there are some real issues there. 
but the NDIS isn't the only thing um, that, that should be dealing with that. You know, um, there are other um, things that go on with other government services or with our mainstream community more broadly that will be needed to, to address some of those issues. Uh, it, it, the scale of the scale and scope of change associated with the NDIS is significantly more huge than we've seen in other um, comparable systems. So um, I'm from the UK originally, um, and the sorts of changes that have happened there around the individualization of funding, um, which is one part of, of the NDIS, we essentially evolved to those systems over about 30 years. And, and Australia has gone through this um, within kind of, you know, how you look at it, sort of about you know a couple of years, five years at the most sort of experience where other systems have taken decades. So the, the speed of change um, was always going to lead to lead to difficulties. So um, this would never be a kind of you could never just plan this um, process and it would work. You know everybody would fall into place exactly like we wanted to. Um, and so we just need to continue to make sure we consult with a wide range of different people and to hear. Um, some of those issues, and obviously with the Royal Commission in, um, that's going on at the moment around uh, disability, there, there are going to be some really challenging stories that, that we will hear coming out of there, and we need to um, really listen to those carefully and think about how we adjust our, uh, our service systems, but also our community more broadly to be able to um, deal with some of those issues. Finally, I know um, aside from issues with the scheme itself, it seems just understanding all the nuts and bolts of NDAS can be really difficult. Um, I worked in disability care myself and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Um, do you have any advice for people who are receiving funding trying to process all the information? Oh, there's no doubt that it's a, it is a huge challenge. And just in research that I've done, it's the thing that people tell us most often is just navigating the system is hugely, hugely difficult. Um, one of the things um, that has helped a lot of people through planning processes um, is taking um, either a professional or a member of family or a friend into those planning processes who can help guide. And, and there is provision to pay for somebody um, to do that, although unfortunately many people don't know about that in their first plan and don't kind of realise that till their uh, for their second plan. Um, so um, having people who can help support you through those processes and, um, and ask, uh, listen and, and help ask some of those difficult questions is, is really useful. Um, there are a number of um, community organisations around the country who are doing some really good work in trying to um, help explain um, and describe um, and advocate. Um, uh, and so people like... Um, Every Australian uh, people like those organisations are really helpful in advising and advocating for individuals. So um, getting in touch with people and telling them some of your story um, and seeing what they can do to support that, I think it's a really helpful process. And that was my interview with Helen Dickinson, a Professor of Public Service Research at University of New South Wales. Uh, we were discussing the upcoming changes to the NDIS. And now we're going to listen to Better in Black from Thelma Plum.
think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. It's 7.45. And our next interview is with Dr. John Sarri, who is a psychiatrist with 34 years experience in public and private psychiatry and clinical teaching at Melbourne and Monash Universities. He has spent the past 11 years as a psychiatrist member of the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal and its predecessor. Now, John joined us last month in studio to discuss the findings of the interim report of the Victorian Mental Health Royal Commission, which came out in November. So our studio guest this morning, Dr John Serry, a psychiatrist member on the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal. Welcome and thank you for coming into the studio to speak with us. Thanks, good to be here. John has 34 years experience in public and private psychiatry and clinical teaching at Melbourne and Monash Universities and for the past 11 years has been a psychiatrist member on the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal. He's joining us today to talk about the final findings of the interim report of the Victorian Mental Health Royal Commission, which came out in November. And a warning, this interview will discuss mental illness and includes references to suicide. If this might be distressing for you, you may wish to tune out for a little bit. Before we have our chat, John, I'd just like to play a short audio from the Royal Commission that they have up on their website just by way of introduction, and then we'll get into our chat. Approximately one in five Victorians will experience a mental illness in any given year. Victoria's mental health system has failed to help those who are most in need of high quality treatment, care and support. The current system has been described as broken. So the Victorian government established a royal commission into Victoria's mental health system. So far, there have been more than 8,200 contributions from the Victorian community. The interim report is now available to the public. John, a royal commission is the highest form of independent public inquiry a government can call for. Why, in your opinion, was it necessary? I think there was a recognition uh, at many levels community, government, uh, and within the services themselves, that uh, there'd been a running down of mental health services in Victoria over the last decade in particular, and that things were reaching a crisis, and that uh, a major revamp of the situation was indicated, and uh, that a Royal Commission would give the impetus and structure 
under which that could be undertaken. And there was immediately a, uh, an agreement from government that they would institute the recommendations of that Royal Commission. In fact, they gave a blanket approval that they were comfortable with the people they were appointing to that position and that they were prepared to uh, enact the recommendations as soon as possible and, most importantly, fund them. Well, that's a, a bold statement by the government. Um, the Mental Health Act passed in 2014 was uh, brought in to protect consumer rights, and yet we find ourselves in this critical situation. How can people have confidence that the government will act on the findings of the Royal Commission when those final recommendations come out? I, I think we can have confidence that the uh, government will attempt to act. There has to be a, a revamp within the services so that they have the staffing, they have the allocation of resources to be able to put into implementation uh, on the ground the recommendations. So these are, we're looking at radical recommendations, major changes from where things have been in the future. And uh, the process of change in, in large organisations is, uh, is difficult and often takes time and a culture has to adjust to the changes that are required. So the 2014 Act was a major improvement on the predecessors. It stressed the rights of consumers and their carers and family. It stressed a consultative approach in defining treatment. Um, but these things are, are difficult to put into practice when they're not the uh, modus operandi that exists and when the resources are so, so strapped that uh, introducing change is, is very difficult at the ground face-to-face -face level. Um, but the acknowledgement that the Act has made appropriate changes and that these have to be resourced so that they can be put into practice is an important part of this Royal Commission and where it's heading. The statistics are truly alarming when we look at the situation in Victoria. Um, one in two Victorians will experience mental illness over the course of their lifetime and an estimated 3.1% of people, so three in every hundred in Victoria, live with a severe mental illness such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And in 2018 there were 720 suicide deaths in Victoria, which was more than three times the road toll, and over 7,000 admitted to hospital because of self-harm. And perhaps most startling um, is that suicide is now the leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 44 in Australia. What are the biggest systemic problems the Royal Commission has identified so far? I think they've identified that there is uh, um, dissatisfaction in consumers and, and their carers as to the service that they're receiving in terms of access, ready access to the service and the engagement of the services uh, with the participants uh, has received a lot of criticism in the presentations to the Royal Commission in their community consultations. And that with the rundown of funding 
over the past 10 years uh, and the growth in demand, uh, there's been a major mismatch and the services have been extremely stressed and they haven't had the backup support services to provide the sort of comprehensive uh, treatment plans that, that patients need. And uh, that's been a progressive uh, decrease. Uh, Victoria was a leading funded service uh, in the past, and uh, that's dramatically changed, so it's now towards the bottom of the list. Um, but it's not just a question of funds. It's a question of recruiting staffing. It's getting the range of staff members so that patients can be treated well in the medical model, but also extending their care outside the medical model to provide support in housing, support in uh, psychological approaches to treatment, uh, having staff who can spend the time to properly engage with the consumers and their support team, to work out agreed-to plans of management that... Uh, that can have an effect. So the statistics you quoted are indicative of uh, the extent of the problem, not uncommon and not uh, unparalleled in other similar uh, communities. But uh, we're faced with, with issues of trying to uh, contain self-harm, trying to contain suicidal behaviour, uh, and at the same time, we've got a scourge of increased drug use, particularly ice, uh, which has put enormous stress on the relationship between emergency services and very disturbed clientele and uh, changed attitudes towards clientele uh, who are seen now as dangerous and has had an effect, a significant effect on the morale of staff and their preparedness to engage uh, with people who they're frightened of. So there are a lot of issues that need need attention. Uh, I'm calmed to a degree by the fact that the uh, commissioners cover a very wide range of experience, but they've come together with a very unified approach to what is required. They have not just tinkered around the edges, but they're looking at major structural change so that services are organised over the state and with a unified approach uh, to mental health care uh, that's been lacking because services have tended to be isolated and, as I said, again, poorly resourced. And although they're manfully trying to uh, deal with the situation, it's been overwhelming and, and that's led to staff stress, uh, which was raised in the community consultations a lot, about how staff were stressed, how they found it difficult to remain in the front line under the circumstances that they were operating, how people were leaving the services, even people with major experience were wanting to move to administrative positions rather than face the distressing situations that they were unable to cope with. And what are some of the key recommendations, or can you give us a couple of examples of where the Royal Commission is indicating change might be uh, warranted and, and I think they're, they're talking about organisational change so that there is 
more clear-cut policy which applies to all the services around the states, a removal of what they call silos of care, where each individual service dictates its own policy and there isn't a, a common policy, where services provide across-the-board responses that are required in, in mental health care, uh, not just medication, not just medical, but also social assistance, uh, psychological assistance, proper uh, coordination of teams of care that can provide the multiple needs that come up in these situations and the flow-on of those problems to carers, to family, that uh, tend to uh, extend the impact of mental illness uh, within families and within carers so that uh, one has to take a broader view uh, of the clinical situation than simply addressing symptoms and trying to control them. So going beyond just the medical aspects and yes. building a, a social support yes. service. And, and, not, and not finding yourself in a very stressed service where you're trying to contain risk and risk becomes the paramount consideration rather than patient care and creative patient care and um, a recovery-based orientation. If you're just battling to contain risk, in people who are severely disturbed and often have multiple and enduring mental health problems, you never get to engage with the patient and start to map out a proper recovery plan that may make a major change over a lifetime because you're dealing with the crisis. And the crisis is um, about blame. Services don't want to be blamed because they lose a patient, they don't want to be blamed because uh, a patient acts out in a destructive way in the community and that becomes the focus rather than being able to calmly engage and provide the services that are needed um, and uh, fulfil what the public expects of them. And does Victoria have any existing examples of this holistic model that you're describing? I've had some uh, involvement recently with an organisation called First Step which deals with people with enduring mental illness and associated illicit drug use and it's a one step shop it has all of the personnel that might be required in um, dealing with a patient's problems in an ongoing fashion under one roof and liaising well with each other and uh, have a welcoming, friendly attitude to clients, uh, consumers and to their family and carers. And it's a model which could well be looked at as being uh, one that needs to be extended and, and used educationally and, and for other services. Now, the report emphasises the inadequacy of existing mental health services in terms of availability, accessibility and efficacy, but it also identifies an important cultural dimension, that is the social stigma associated with mental illness. 
In fact, it goes so far as to shift some of the responsibility for the system's failure to all Victorians, stating that an inclusive, tolerant and supportive community plays a vital role in nurturing good mental health and wellbeing. What me measures is the Royal Commission likely to recommend to address this cultural aspect of mental health in Victoria and how effective do you think such measures can be? Some of the stigma has been dealt with by organisations in the community that uh, identify the extent of mental illness and uh, the fact that it extends in to all groups within the community, that it's not simply uh, uh, identified uh, within one group. So that's all positive. Uh, community attitudes need to change, uh, particularly in terms of risk tolerance and equating all uh, behaviour, behavioural episodes that reach the headlines um, as being related to mental illness and then people want to take a very risk-averse position which isn't healthy in terms of trying to deal with the mental health problems that uh, exist. They're more restrictive, controlling, lead to a, an extension of people being treated compulsorily, lead to uh, extensive use of restrictive practices, whether it's in the judicial system for people with mental illness or whether it's in the community. And we need to have a degree of community tolerance that there will still be people who self-harm or take their lives. There will still be people with mental illness who sometimes behave in an unacceptable social manner. But that can't be the primary focus if one wants to deal with stigma and one wants to be able to deliver the services that are needed. There has to be an understanding and an acceptance and engagement with people in the long term and providing them with some of the things that are going to stabilise their condition in addition to medication, like uh, good housing, appropriate physical health care, appropriate negotiation and relationships with their care team over the long term, a continuity of care which is seriously lacking in the system at the moment, whereby people move from hospital to community to different teams to new people that they've got to deal with all the time, restart their whole bonding because the therapeutic relationship is essential in dealing with enduring illness, whether it's mental or physical, that there's a basis of trust between the carer, the consumer and the treating team. And that requires time and experience where people learn to trust and feel safe uh, with the care team and that the responses are going to be appropriate to their needs. And just to wrap up, because there are so many questions we could ask, um, this is a huge, uh, highly important and uh, complex area. But to finish with, uh, if you had the opportunity to speak personally to each person experiencing mental illness in Victoria and look them in the eye on a personal level, what would your message of support be? But there are good workers out there that they've got to stand up for themselves and for their rights, that they need to have advocacy from family, friends, support people, or from professional advocacy services so that their case can be clearly made and they're not a lone voice trying to speak in the wilderness, uh, and that there are people who are prepared to listen. And if the commission is successful and we improve our services, 
there'll be more people out there to listen and hear your problem and make appropriate responses. Well, on that note, thank you for coming in to talk to us today. That was Dr John Serry, psychiatrist member of the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal, talking to us live in the studio at 3CR Melbourne. And if this interview raises issues for you, or if you or a loved one requires support, call Lifeline on 131114, Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636, or contact betterhealth.vic.gov.au for mental health service information. And for any emergency situations, please dial triple zero. Fantastic to hear that interview again with uh, Claudia, who's not here this morning, and Dr John Serry. And now we're going to play Hold On by Good Charlotte. Your feelings 
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised logging, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Now we're going to revisit an important interview from last month with Raylene Haradine, who is a proud watchable look and Lachi Lachi woman and the chairperson of the Victorian Aboriginal Children and Young People's Alliance, as well as CEO of the Bendigo and District Aboriginal Cooperative. Now this interview does come with a content warning. It came after a report uh, presented to Parliament illuminated the suicides of 35 children known to child protection services over the last decade. So I started by asking Raylene, how is the system failing these kids? Well, the current system, if you look at it, is um, an all-or-nothing approach and for, our, for the children. And if you look at that, it is, um, you know, some of the children or most of the children that were um, identified in the report were known to child protection and at the time um, the criteria was such that there wasn't enough criteria for them to be, removal wasn't met. When you really break it down, only 17% of the child protection budget goes towards early intervention and, and that is why we are calling for a much higher investment from government to help these families. So that's sort of the what we're looking at. I think child protection works one way. It doesn't look at how to work with families and to give them that sort of the way that we operate from an Aboriginal point of view. So, so six of the 35 kids were Aboriginal and Aboriginal kids are vastly overrepresented in out-of-home care. Why are the current practices of statutory child protection so damaging to Aboriginal kids? Well, the overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care is one of Australia's gravest human rights concerns. Just alone in Victoria, Aboriginal children are around um, 15.8 times more likely to be in out-of-home care compared to their non-Aboriginal peers. And if the current system persists, the number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care will double in the next six years. Clearly, this does show the level of crisis the current system is in. 
Um, in Australia, we have something called the Aboriginal Placement Principle. This prioritises that Aboriginal kids are placed with Aboriginal families and that's so that they can retain their connection to their culture and community. Aboriginal children, if you look at it, have, have cultural rights that are protected by the Human Rights Charter in both Victoria and internationally. And for our Aboriginal children, not only being strong in their culture and identity is their cultural right. There's also a protective factor, as we know, um, against poor mental health and all the other um, factors that our community are faced with on a daily basis. In the past, when kids have um, gone through the system and come back to the community, but they've been placed originally with non-Indigenous families, is it, is it difficult for the kids to reconnect with their family, with, with community, with culture? It is, absolutely. Um, if we, it's um, like anything and we've, there are so many issues with the current way the current system works. Um, first of all, the current system focuses on the child and not the family as I've spoken about. Um, if a child has been um, in care for a long period of time, this really makes it difficult for the child to connect with their family but also the location of families and um, to or their parents to be able to care for them. If you look at secondly we're you know after a long time returning to community it might it for the child it may seem like they're going back home to strangers because they've been in care for so long. Um, under our Victorian legislation we um, we want to see that every child has what we call a cultural support, cultural plan um, and this cultural support plan ensures that Aboriginal ch children have regular contact with their with their community and so that their connection is not lost but unfortunately there is a large non-compliance um, particularly um, that's that has been taken place. I think we're starting to work at the moment, particularly, um, you know, for good news is that we are working closely with the Victorian government and mainstream community sector at the moment to see that, you know, that um, all children have a cultural support plan. And um, if we were to, if that's to occur, then that is one of those protective factors that we have for our children in moving forward so that they know who their, with the cultural support plan, they do know who their family is, their, their mob, their connection to the community if they've been removed from community and um, those, those kind of um, factors and also they get to um, connect with their community or their families on a regular basis whilst if they're in care with um, outside of their family group. The other thing um, I wanted to mention one as we saw last week with the report that was released from the Principal Commissioner and the Aboriginal Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People, the report of In Our Own Words which is a systemic inquiry into the lived experience of children and young people in Victoria in the out-of-home care system. That report really highlights and um, looks at what the issues have been for because they interviewed over, I think it was around um, 204 young people in, um, in Victoria and they, that was from rural, regional and metropolitan Victoria and that were the children who were currently living in a 
in or had recently left out of home care. So they told their stories around what that meant for them um, living in this in these environments um, and just some of the quotes and, and the stories of, if you read the report, it's... Um, I think it's timely that we've um, found the voice. You know, we're we're able to be a, to listen to the voice of the the young person instead of, you know, thinking that we as a um, adults and government and that can make decisions on behalf of our children. I think it's important that we hear the voice of our children. And if if you know if people take the time to look at that report to see, it can be very sad. But also it's and confronting, but it's it brings to light what what we've been exposing, what what's been exposed, what our children have been exposed to in the system for for so long. Yeah, there's definitely an element of ageism um, both ways, you know, with with the with elderly in um, in aged care and then young people in um, child protection. Uh, what what other reform do you do you think needs to be seen in the overhaul of the child protection system, especially the well-being of Aboriginal kids? Well, I think one of the things we're looking at, and this is particularly um, as my role as the chair of the Aboriginal um, Children's Alliance for Victoria, is um, we're actually calling for a, um, um, that's come out of the report recently, for a, a round table, an Aboriginal round table, to bring to light the systemic failings of child protection and mental health systems and on Aboriginal children and young family in the carers, so which will um, ultimately provide our opportunity to to highlight the innovative and solutions that have have driven that have been driven in our communities over the the many years around how we've been having an effect positive effect on our community and our children. So, you know, I think that's one of the key drivers that we would be looking at as part of the um, key work that needs to occur. I think when we look at things in particular, not things, but when we look at um, um, how can we fix up the systems, a lot of the time it's government usually have, they have dictated to us around what needs to happen. So it's, um, I think for us in Victoria, it's really um, important to highlight the work that we're doing with government here in Victoria because they're, they're wanting to work with us. They're wanting to hear our voice and how we can make a difference for our children and make changes because we know what's going on on the ground, you know, on the ground for our community. We're faced with it every day when our community comes in, coming to our organisations and are seeking a service or, um, you know, they come in um, because they're, and I talk about it all the time, our community are not living, just, some of them are just surviving because, because of the social environment that they're in, but the, the, you know, the negative factors that they're faced with on a daily basis just to be able to be a good parent but also to be able to survive because um, their culture is lost um, and... They want to be a good parent, but sometimes there are contributing factors that go towards them not being able to do that. So, and when we work with them, it's um, as organisations across Victoria, we work from with our communities from a strength-based approach. That's no non-judgmental around what the work that we do. So, yeah, ultimately, we want to make sure that 
we support our family so that they can be good parents, but they so that our their children, our community's children, can remain with their families. So that's that's with the uh, Bendigo and District Aboriginal Cooperative, which you're CEO, CEO of. And I wonder if you could tell us about the services you provide for families in the community. Yeah, um, we. With pleasure. Look, we do provide a holistic level of service. Um, we're just one of um, many Aboriginal organisations in Victoria that, that, that work with our own community. Our organisation is like a, if you call it like a bit of a health hub and a cultural hub. Um, we have GPs on site, counsellors, justice workers. We also run all sorts of programs, in, you know, including family violence supports, men's groups, women's groups. So we have a, a an organisation that looks at the whole person, not just, um, you know, individual. You know, if someone comes in with a broken arm, we don't just treat them for the broken arm. We, we actually look at the mess from a holistic point of view, but then extend onto that. So it's about us working with them individually and also if they need support for their family. We in particular um, for BDAC have been, the we were the first rural ACO, um, VACA was the first metropolitan agency to, to take on um, Section 18 or guardianship and we're the first rural ACO to, to take on guardianship in pilot form in 2016 and then we then last year in December in 2018, we were fully authorised to take on children in out in out of home care, fully making decisions. And um, so, we've the work we've done in this space is is if we've just seen so many um, positive changes for our community, but we've seen a lot of our families. Um, and our children remaining with their families with the support that we've provided and that's from that holistic point of view with a non-judgmental approach and ultimately making sure that we do whatever work we do is in the best interest of the child. So just the, the results that we've had of just seeing families um, living together you know, in safe and happy homes. So we've kept children with either their parent or guardian or they might remain or, or reside with their kin. So that piece of work that we're doing is just, I see that as astronomical because it's something that hasn't happened before in, you know, in my time because we've always seen children that have been in limbo in the uh, child protection system and that's not no fault to child protection, it's just the way that the system operates and how they're funded to do that. So I would, you know, and I know that Ballarat's um, going into um, guardianship as well and so is um, Nurnda or Pinachuga. So, you know, it's if anything, hopefully we're going to see a lot of our um, Aboriginal agencies taking on guardianship to be able to make decisions for their children in that, that live in their community because it's real important that this happens. Such important work. Yeah. Any families or kids listening who are struggling, who can they contact for support? Um, well, there's a few options actually. You can either, children and families can either contact their local Aboriginal health, you know, their organisation. Um, and because we are in a position to be able to advocate for, for 
for them. We can also, um, if they don't want to use an Aboriginal organisation, we can always support, you know, refer them to other support services in particular, like um, the other community service aid organisations particularly that um, provide help. Um, if if you're in out of home care and wish to make a complaint, you can always give the commissioner for children and young people a call, um, and that's that's okay. That's a good thing. Um, and of you know, and of course, if anyone's in um, real if they're in crisis, they can also call the kids helpline or lifeline. So that's there. There are various options, and you know, we know that things can be tough and. Um, you know, always we don't want to really downplay that, but I have seen, you know, we've seen some ultimate um, positives come out of some of our community who have been in major crisis in the past, um, and they've come through with help and with the understanding and the belief that I suppose some of them, some of our community don't um, have not had that. Um, uh, trust, yeah. or and the, and people don't believe in them. So, bef so when you have someone that actually believes in you and trusts you, you can. It's amazing how people thrive and grow, and you know, and become very um, healthy in the way that what they really want to do. But when someone's constantly pushing you down, it's very hard to be able to stand up and and be strong. That was fantastic to hear from Raylene Haradine, and that was about the the in, the report that uh, got put in front of Parliament last year about the, the deaths of 35 children um, known to child protection services over the last decade. Um, it's been a great show, uh, yeah. revisiting some of those important stories that we covered at the end of last year. And we're really looking forward to covering covering more of those stories. Yeah, absolutely. 2020 is ahead now. Bring it on. Yeah, bring <laughs> it on. Um, that's going to be, yeah, Monday Brookie, bringing it all to you in 2020. And, yeah, just a quick shout out to anyone affected in those areas with the bushfires. We've spoken a bit about that today. And um, I think we've got some helplines as well going. Ella? Yeah, so um, in case of emergency, of course, call triple zero. Uh, otherwise, we've got the Vic Emergency Hotline. Their number is 1-800-226-226. Um, and you can listen out to official emergency broadcasters in your local areas uh, using the ABC. And um, it's, it is easy to get bogged down, um, you know, when, the, when it seems like the country is burning. But, you know, there's a lot of things we can do. We can get together. There's... Uh, there's a fantastic gig on at the Gasso tomorrow night if anyone's interested. Um, it, it's 
it's uh, it's headlined by Dreaming Now, and you know as as the fires have struck the east coast of this sacred land recently, it has led to significant destruction and loss of masses of flora and fauna, and sadly the lives of people and and many First Nations people have been affected by these tragic circumstances. And so this this gig at the Gasso, the 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 funds from that are going to go to supporting First Nations people affected by the bushfires. Mm. Yeah, I think the one positive of all this is the response we've seen from the community, which has been really great. Absolutely. Yep. I'm going to try and get down there tomorrow night. Um, and I, as we spoke about at the beginning of the show as well, um, just have a look online and on the on some websites for any of the like fire services or anything like that. If you're looking to donate or if you have food, there are food banks going as well. Um, just for people that are being affected by the fires. And I think that wraps it up for today. Um, make sure to stay tuned for Women on the Line and also for all of our summer programming. And you can check out the schedule at 3cr.org.au forward slash summer schedule. And it is uh, very, very smoky in the air today. So everybody, um, you know, just watch it out for yourselves and watch it out for your pets.